the Access to Education podcast, where we talk about everything having to do with learning challenges and learning disabilities. On today's episode, I'm talking to Tiana, a mother of three, educator, lifelong learner, and owner of the part-time jungle, helping mothers connect in a world that can sometimes be overwhelming and isolating. As well as all this, Tiana has navigated her eldest son's diagnosis of ADHD and anxiety. She has also come to understand her own diagnosis of ADHD as an adult. Prior to starting the part-time jungle, Tiana worked as a teacher in junior and high school and now works as an instructor at the University of Calgary in the Rookland School of Education. Her career has also taken her to work as an early learning coordinator, supporting home-based and school-based programs in teams of specialized supporting children ages three to five with developmental delays. Tiana, welcome to the show. I am super excited for this conversation tonight. I know it's going to be full of interesting nuggets. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's kind of jump right into the nitty gritty because really as parents, what we want is that nitty gritty information and we just want to kind of get the information. So let's start right off the bat. Tell us a little bit about your oldest child and did you realize that he had ADHD or was it something that came through school? Did somebody, did daycare mention it? Like how did you come to understand your eldest child? Well, so getting to know him better has definitely been a journey. And I would say that some things became more evident in school, but I would say more for us as parents than specifically with teachers. So even as a little guy, like right from the very beginning, if we look back, he was a very sensitive kiddo. So a lot of loud noise or being around a really busy situation, those types of things would result in him having a lot of emotions (laughs) that needed to come out. And it seemed like he really needed to decompress. He was also very sensitive to things like tags and seams and all those kinds of things. So I did seek advice from our family doctor and actually a couple of specialists when he was young because I was unsure if his like very extreme emotions were quote-unquote normal because he was our very first child. (laughs) Those sensitivities did continue um, as he entered school but they definitely lessened in terms of the extreme nature of his reactions to things. But he just seemed to be, actually, first of all, we, we sort of recognized his anxiety. So as, especially as he developed the ability to share verbally with us what was going on for him, he was worrying about a lot of things as well. So uh, throughout school, in general, we seemed able to sort of talk to his teacher about the fact that he tended to worry about things and times of transition were tough and he could be easily overwhelmed. And then when he got to grade five, he, uh, he was in a class with a teacher who didn't seem to be as on board with making accommodations for him. And I, as a teacher myself, I can certainly appreciate all the things that a teacher is dealing with. And there's so many moving parts and pieces and children that learn in so many different ways and uh, come with such complex and interesting and different backgrounds and approaches to learning. 
But I think in that moment, especially with my educator hat, my husband is um, an elementary school principal. We just sort of felt like throughout his school career, our eldest would end up in situations where a teacher might not just naturally be accommodating, but if we sort of explored things further um, and maybe looked at getting a diagnosis and in Alberta it's called um, an IPP, which would be like an IEP in Ontario, that he would be you know, sort of better ensured to get the support that he needed. So it started with a diagnosis of anxiety. And that made sense to us, but as he carried on it with school, there seemed to be more to the picture. And it was just something that was really eating at me. And I know um, typically we think of ADHD in terms of being hyperactive. And I think even in my experience as a teacher, that was the way that it sort of presented itself most often with the kids that I worked with. But in doing a little bit of investigating myself, I realized that ADHD in an inattentive type is actually more common than I realized. So when our eldest was in junior high, where there are more teachers and different approaches and more things to keep track of, uh, we decided to circle back to the psychologist that we had seen before and talk to her about some of the things that we are noticing and inquiring and doing some further investigating if there was more to the story. And in fact, there was. So um, that ultimately, I think it more so came from my husband and I. And I think part of the reason why it maybe didn't come from the teachers is because at school, our eldest is very compliant and cooperative and always seems to be doing what he should be. So when we would say things like, you know, he had had an in incredibly emotional reaction at home and just absolutely fell apart or was really struggling and having a hard time, they were very surprised. <laughs> so that was, that was sort of our journey in, in getting, getting to that diagnosis. I think that emotional piece that you're talking about where you go to the teacher and you say, okay, but he came home last night and there was this big explosion and there was all this emotion. I think what I'm seeing more and more as I work with students, as I work with clients, as I, you know, go through this advocacy work and work with other families, I'm hearing a lot of that. And really, I mean, listen, I'm not a doctor. I can't write any of those things. But what I can say is I think what happens is that as parents, we are the safe space. We are the place where that emotion can be unleashed, whether we like it or not, whether it's a convenient time for the emotion to, you know, be unleashed, like, you know, cooking dinner and there's a child screaming and having a meltdown. And, and as parents of these kind of um, super feelers, because that's what they are, they're super feelers, we have to kind of pivot and turn and be able to kind of support them through that. So it, it's, it's hard and it masks, I think, a lot of other things that are going on sometimes. Absolutely. It can be a tough time. So I'm also an educator, much like yourself and your husband, um, which has its own difficulties when we have these little ones. Um, but I wonder for your family, did your own background in the knowledge of education that you have, did it help or did it hinder your ability to see that there might be something? So I know you kind of touched on it very briefly, 
but I wonder if for you, so I know for myself as a parent and a person with a learning disability, I was always kind of on high alert, always kind of looking. And then to the point of one day, my husband was like, you need to stop looking for something that's not there. But, and so it, it, it helped and it hindered a little bit. I wonder if you had an experience that was similar or different to that. Yeah, I think that because we weren't hearing things from the school, it made us question the knowledge that we have as educators and what we were seeing at home as parents, because it made us think maybe it's more just, as you said, just that emotional release at home. You know, it is a long day being at school. There's a lot going on. So it, that sort of made us question the questions that we were asking. I think the biggest thing that helped was our understanding that there is a process in place to support kiddos that might need to have things approached in a slightly different way or might need some additional supports in place to help them be uh, as successful as they can be. And when we were seeing that he wasn't being or demonstrating the success that we knew he was capable of, we knew that in exploring um, the diagnosis process or sort of uh, making sure that we could get those supports in place for him, that things would be a lot better. So we were really aware of the process and what we needed to do to ensure that he had those supports. So I think that was the helpful piece. But I would say that it is tricky as a parent and an educator to approach another teacher and not have it feel maybe a bit uncomfortable because I, I sometimes felt like I was maybe stepping on people's toes in a way and I didn't ever want to be telling anybody what to do. But at the same time, I really wanted to advocate and support our child and set him up for success. So that piece was a tricky one to navigate for us a little bit. But um, at the end of the day, I think it was just really helpful to have those conversations with the teachers to share our insights and to take action and explore. Like, I think it's always good just to trust that gut instinct that we have inside of us that maybe as i said like there's more to the story and and looking into it there's no harm in asking those questions and looking into things a little bit more i think it's a good thing to do and that's that advocacy part that is hard and and what i think i want parents who are listening to this particular episode because here we are both educators saying it was hard for us to advocate it was hard for us to ask the question. So even though we work in the industry, if you will, it didn't make it any more difficult or any easier for us to go in and say, hey, we're not sure about this or can somebody help us with this? I think what maybe helped me was that at much to your point, Tiana, is knowing the steps and the processes and the things that needed to happen to get the help. And I think that's maybe something, I don't know what it's like at where you are, but I think sometimes the steps in the process is the hard part for families to understand because it's not well known. I don't know if it's the same at where you are. No, it's not well known. And I think that's one of the reasons. So when our eldest 
transitioned from elementary. So in Alberta, many students go from elementary school to junior high when they start grade seven. I, when he, when he started grade seven, we, you know, he started, time went on, and then we just received his IPP um, from the school, and there had been no conversation with our child and no conversation with um, my husband or I, and not even a reach out or an ask, not a questionnaire, nothing at all. And it just made me feel so uncomfortable because I knew there should be a process in place and there wasn't. And so it was just so baffling and that created a bit of a difficult situation because I wasn't sure how the school was looking for input or if they were looking for input at all. And it just seemed like a box that had been checked off and not something that was going to be implemented in a meaningful way. And you know, as you know, there's, there can be some uh, financial investment involved in getting your child diagnosed. There's a lot of emotional investment and time for all those things to happen and to have that kind of, it felt like be pushed aside. That was very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I will say that things have changed and there is a process now in place and it just makes such a difference, I think, for, for everybody. So and I think what's so important, and I, I really, when I, when I talk to families about advocating and how to advocate and when I work with clients and when I talk to other parents who've been through it, that idea of the team collective between the family and the school and when the child gets to a particular age, like your son, for example, in, in um, grade seven in middle school, he is able to be an active participant in deciding what his goals need to be and how to implement them. And, and I think that that's the piece that is so important so that everybody is working towards the same goal. Like if mom and dad have one idea or parents or whoever the adults in this child's life are, they have a goal, they have, an, they have a vision. The teachers have a goal, they have a vision. The child themselves probably has a goal and a vision. If you asked them, I, a lot of these little guys are very, very articulate. They are more aware than any of them give us credit for. So um, it's so important to have that team and that input. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so what's the hardest part as a parent getting a diagnosis? I can tell you what I think the hardest part was, but I would be really curious, Tiana, to hear what you felt the hardest part was, um, because I think that that's something that is hard for us as parents when we get that official diagnosis. It does feel a little bit like a punch to the gut. Um, my personally for me because of my own background it was a lot of guilt I remember crying in the psychologist's office and saying it's my fault I did this and her having to remind me no this is actually biology this is not your fault you didn't do it but I'm curious to hear how it was for you yeah so I know later we're going to be talking about my own diagnosis but at the time this wasn't on my radar uh in well it was starting to be on my radar i would say but i think the hardest thing was sort of asking myself why did i not pick up on this sooner or why didn't i do something about this sooner <clears throat> i just felt like i should have known especially with being an educator and having worked in education for so long 
And I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, but I felt a lot of guilt around that because maybe he wouldn't have had to struggle so hard for so long had we just looked into that other piece of the puzzle sooner. So there is definitely that. And then the other thing that was tricky was just finding ways to support him with the idea of having a diagnosis. And I think, you know, especially so in grade five, he got the diagnosis of anxiety and then ADHD and attentive type in grade seven. And kids, of course, struggle with the fact that they just don't want to look different or be different or stand out or be that kid or what, whatever the case may be. So just navigating how to work through that with him, especially in the beginning, was really tough. But what I really like about that is that you emphasize just now the fact that you talked to him about his diagnosis, right? It's his. It's his to understand. It's his to learn. It's his to, to own in whatever way he wants to own it. Um, personally, when I was younger, my dyslexia, I did not want to own it. I did not want it. I did not like it. It was not something I wanted to identify with. But as I grew up and my parents continued the conversation with me about what it is, what strengths it gives me, because it sure does, um, I learned to own it in a way that was meaningful for me. And I think that's so important in any diagnosis is that families can sit and have conversation and talk about it. It shouldn't be a secret. It shouldn't be something that you don't talk about. It's like the IEP. If your son or daughter or child has an IEP, it's so important to talk about why. I just think that that's something that sometimes is missing for some kids. And obviously when they're in kindergarten, if they have one in kindergarten or grade one, maybe, maybe that's not the time to talk about it. But as they grow to understand themselves as a learner, because that I think transfers, and we're going to get to this in a minute, Tiana, when we talk about you and your own ADHD, but I think it allows you as an adult when you're in the working world to advocate for the things that you need because you've been doing it from the beginning. And that's, yeah. I think, really important. Well, and that's just it. Like for our son, he now understands himself so much better as a learner. He knows the things that are challenging for him. He knows what his strengths are. And it's been so amazing to see him be able to draw on those strengths to help himself out in those situations that are more difficult, but also seeing him be able to advocate for himself. So to have those conversations with his teacher without needing my husband or I to kind of step in and, and help with that. So as much, but he's, he's done really, really well. It's been great. So what's a piece of advice you'd give to a parent? We've talked about a lot of little nuggets of, of things that I think are great for families to use, but you having been through this yourself, what would what is your piece of advice that you give to families when they go through these challenges? So, yeah, I think the biggest thing, and especially when I was working with young children with developmental delays, so I think that the one piece of advice that I would give to parents is that information is really such an empowering tool for both you and your child because it helps you to better understand how what your child's strengths are as well as their areas of challenge and it also helps your child understand those things for themselves so in both cases 
It's incredibly empowering and allows both you and your child to advocate for your child and to be able to communicate uh, the things that are going to help your child to be as, as successful as possible. It's information is empowering. So let's talk about Tiana the adult. She's just been through this with her child and something in all of that clearly as you were going through it with your son triggered something for you. So tell me a little bit about your journey as an adult because there are probably going to be people listening to this who maybe have kids with ADHD and are wondering about themselves or maybe just somebody who's wondering whether or not as an adult they might have ADHD. So how did it come about for you? All right. So uh, in going with our son to the appointments with the psychologist, there were times when he was having conversations and testing where I wasn't in the room, but there was times that I was there. And the questions that he was being asked really made me take pause and reflect and think, huh, that's actually something that I have a hard time with. That's so interesting. But I, that sort of started the ball rolling. But I think the biggest thing was I came across a documentary by um, CBC called ADHD, It's Not Just for the Kids. And some of the sections definitely didn't apply, but there were some sections of the documentary actually that focused specifically on women and, it, and telling the story of some women and their experiences with ADHD and how they'd managed to be successful and, you know, they'd gone through university and all these things. But when I was listening to their stories, I really saw myself in those situations. And I always did well in school, but I struggled with picking up the key pieces of information. I had to go over things a million times. So I invested so much time and energy in studying. I never felt when I, was, when I left a class that I had really got that much out of the class. So I would have to go over my notes and read the textbook and sort of try and teach myself what had happened in the lesson that day. And it just seemed really hard. And I know often we look around and we think, why is this so hard for me and nobody else? And I know everybody has their struggles, but it was really hard for me. And so that was really the kicker for me that I think this could actually be me. I could have ADHD inattentive type as well. Um, so similar to our eldest, I struggle with auditory information. It's like in one ear, out the other. But then I really reflected and I could see that just like the women in this documentary, I have had developed some coping strategies and skills that really helped me to do what I needed to do. I decided though that it was worth it to go and have a conversation with my family doctor and just, you know, get some more information and see what happened. And I'll say too that in having our eldest get his diagnosis, I was so truly inspired by his bravery, despite it being difficult. He was so brave and how 
overall, he was open to the experience and how he had to be vulnerable in such a huge way. Um, but it led to such amazing outcomes. I just so proud of him. And I thought, surely, if our child can demonstrate that bravery and vulnerability, I too can <laughs> ask those questions and investigate further. So I did go to my family doctor and um, have the conversation. And she agreed that, yes, that would definitely be the case for me. And it felt so refreshing. And to be honest, it's not a secret. Uh, it's not like I go just telling random people, but we've had some, I've had conversations with close friends in that. And it's interesting because there are others of us out there. I had no idea. It's so interesting to share something about like that about yourself and to have somebody else say, so do I. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting. And um, a couple of my female friends that were diagnosed as adults, it was similar in that in having, you know, one of their children diagnosed, they, that's how they also sort of discovered that or realized that about themselves. It's funny how when we release a little piece of information, we find a huge collective of people who are already in our circle who can help us through these sort of strange times. I think we don't think that there are others. And then when we start asking or we start opening ourselves up to that, right? Um, it, 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 I think you attract like-minded people, right? You know, as wooey as that sounds, and I'm not a big wooey person, but it is one of those things where, you know, you do. Sometimes you really attract what, what, is, what is what you need at the time. And that often is the case with these sorts of things. So let's talk about the relationship with your son now. Because now you've got, Eldest was diagnosed, and then later on, there goes mom taking the plunge, doing the same thing and finding things out. Did it change your relationship to each other? Did it strengthen it? Did it make it more difficult? Or does it just, in general, help you understand him better and he to then understand you better? I think it really helps us to understand one another better. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a good thing. You know, obviously it can be challenging at times, um, engaging in deep conversations with our teenagers. Sometimes they don't want to talk to us about things, but I find those times when we're walking side by side or he's sitting beside me and I'm driving him to hockey, we tend to have some good chats. And I think, you know, when he's feeling overwhelmed about something that happened at school, I think I think without him articulating it, the way that we're able to have a conversation, I think he gets that I have been there as well and that it's hard for me too. And, you know, some of the strategies that have helped me aren't necessarily the same ones that um, work well for him, but we're, we're able to talk about it. And I think the fact that there's that open dialogue between us has been a big part of what's helped normalize things for him. And, you know, in a way, we talk about in our family that, you know, his diagnosis, and I guess mine too, is like our superpower. 
because it means that we're really good at certain things. So even everybody has their superpowers and everybody has their things that are harder for them. But in going through the diagnosis process for both of us, we're really aware of what our superpowers are. And so we can talk about those things, especially during those stressful times. So I would say it's been a bonding experience for sure. You know, those strengths, those superpowers that we talk about, they're so important to remember because I think both as parents and people with exceptionalities, I think we can get stuck on the negative side of it in terms of like, to be really specific, the things that you're not good at. So I am still a horrible speller. I'm in my forties. I am a professional. I am working in an industry that it requires me to send gazillions of emails a day. And I've never been more thankful for um, spell check in my life. That is math is still not something that comes easily to me. I have tons of coping mechanisms to be able to function, but it's not my favorite subject. It's not something I'm comfortable with and it's not something I'm good at, but I have a lot of other really good strengths. I'm extremely organized. I am very detail oriented. I notice things happen almost before they have happened. I had somebody commented on it today. I was out in yard duty and something was happening and I had spun and I was like, stop, wait here. And the teacher was like, you saw that before it even happened. I was like, yeah, that's just my superpower. And so being able to play on those things that you're really good at, it doesn't take away the things you're not good at, but it allows you to feel like you are confident in yourself and nobody's good at everything. There isn't anybody on earth who is good at everything. Everybody has a weakness somewhere. Some are more pronounced than others, but the things that you're good at, you need to play into. And I think as parents with kids who have exceptionalities, allowing your child to explore their strengths and really use them, I think is a huge, or can, I don't think, I know it's a huge boost when they get those opportunities to do the things they're really good at. Because sometimes to your point of, you know, some days are really hard when you can really just play into those, those things that they're good at to give them that, that emotional boost, I think is just so important. So if there's an adult listening today, and there probably are a couple, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping there are some. Um, and if they're wondering if they have an exceptionality, maybe it's ADHD, maybe it's something else. What's a piece of advice that you would give them? I would take the small step of going to talk to a professional of some sort. So for me, for example, it was our family doctor. So I have a good relationship with her. I feel comfortable with her. And it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. It was just a conversation. That's all it was. And I think talking to someone, so, you know, maybe somebody isn't quite ready to go to their family doctor. Talk to somebody that you know, love and trust. Maybe it's a good friend, just somebody who will listen and just be that ear for you. But I would definitely talk about it and kind of get it out in the open because you're going to feel better. It's, it's going to take a bit of a weight off your shoulders and it's just sort of a small step. It's not a commitment. <laughs> it's not needing to go and have testing or anything like that done um, with a psychologist, but it's a small step just to, have that initial conversation with somebody. That's what I'd recommend. It was a huge, a huge help for me. And it's a small step that can actually be a really big step. And I would say 
also for those parents who are wondering about their child, just like you had done with your son, is to go and just have the conversation. And you don't have to make a separate appointment to see the doctor. Like if you're going in for your flu vaccine, because we all need to do that this year, right? And be while you're there, hey, can we talk about this? You know, it doesn't have to be a separate appointment that you book specifically to talk about that. And it can just be a, hey, I'm wondering and allow it to just sit. It doesn't, I, I really like your point of it doesn't have to be a big giant thing. It doesn't have to be right to the psychologist. It can just be a teeny tiny conversation to start things off. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and if, and if you're going to your family doctor, for example, you might ask, is there, you know, a website that I could look at, or is there a book that I could read? And maybe that's a, a sort of a next step. If there is something that you wanted to do next, because sometimes just you know, that doctor or professional can point you in a direction just so you can find out a little bit more if you're ready or interested to do that. So that's a really good segue into my next question, Tiana. <laughs> I'm wondering if you've got any good book recommendations. So you've been through it on the educator side in terms of supporting families with child with children with developmental delays. You've got your son who's been through it. You've got you who's gone through it. And if you're anything like me, you've picked up at least one to 10 different books to read. So is there one that you really think, um, you know what, it, and I'm going to say in either side of things, from the parent perspective for the child or from the adult perspective as the adult, and maybe you've got one for each, a book recommendation. So my favorite book is called Smart But Scattered. So it's by Peg Dawson and Richard, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but I think Guare, G-U-A-R-E. And it is fantastic. So what I love about it is that it has some little surveys in it where you do, so it's all about executive functioning and it really breaks down the executive functioning skills. Um, and so there's one for a, a younger child and then an older child and then also for you yourself as the parent. So based on the questions and the scores that you get, it really identifies the specific executive functioning skills that are a strength for your child. And whether or not you have a diagnosis or think you may, you still do the survey as the parent because you can see what executive um, functioning skills are your strengths and your areas of challenge as well. And what I really found this book did well for us is it showed us where and why sometimes it's hard for us to see eye to eye <laughs> and why when we're trying to support our child why that can be challenging because our brains work in different ways so i found for our son and myself for example uh, we both have strengths with working memory and organization so that's something we have in common. Um, and as, for, as far as weaknesses or areas of challenge go, um, we both struggle with flexibility. So we like to know the plan. And if things change at the last minute, that is a little bit tough. Um, I'd say that's something I've gotten better at as I've gotten older. And I would say our son has as, as well, but as a little guy, especially if things changed or didn't follow the routine, <laughs> it was very tough. 
But one area where he and I differ is in metacognition. So just our ability, I would say for him, it comes out in um, his ability to read the crowd. <laughs> That's how I would describe it. And so when my husband and I get frustrated if he's doing something and not appreciating how it's affecting other people, for example, more so in our family, um, now I can better appreciate why that is the case because that is not a strength of his. And it's actually a strength of mine, which is why I can see there's that frustration that can um, crop up. So in the book, what it does is it talks about then how can you develop support and strengthen areas that are a challenge for yourself or your child, and then also help to understand each, each other better and to navigate things during difficult times. So I really, really like this book and it is one that I come back to. It's very practical. <laughs> I feel like it's one where, cause I've, I've, I've read it more than once cover to cover. I've got a few tabs on a few pages um, but I also feel like for anyone out there who's listening and you're in a couple and, and the one partner doesn't maybe have ADHD and is just like, I don't understand. Why can't you just flip? No, I changed the plan and we're going to do this. And, and if you go through that book and you look at those things, it will help you understand each other better. Um, it's sort of one of those um, couple help books without meaning to be a couple help book, but it definitely can be for those when there's one partner who, who has ADHD or, or one of those things. So it, it's a good one. Yes. My husband did go through it and it was eye-opening. I think for both of us, yeah. we are, we are too compatible, but different people. <laughs> different people. Yeah. yeah. What about, um, I know many of us these days have all kinds of fun apps and things on our phones because we're constantly connected to things. And there are some I mean, because we have to give them credit for where they are, right? I mean, there are some apps that are great. The calendar app for me is a lifesaver because dings and pings and reminders of, you know, this is coming and that is coming. But are there any apps that your son really likes or uses or ones that you like or use? Yes. So I would say for our son, one that's been really helpful is Headspace. Now there is a, I revisited it, but so there is a one week free trial, but there is a cost for it. So it's $12.99 a month or $69.99 for the year. So it is an investment for sure, but it's something that he uses every day. So as one of the tools in his toolbox, we really love it because it's effective. Um, we started with the one week trial we tried it and paid for it for a month and felt like it was going to be a good one um, to, to really help them out. So there's things like articles and music and meditations and workouts, and they call them sleep casts. But where we really find it most helpful for him and where a child finds it most helpful for himself is at bedtime. So it's actually part of his bedtime routine. So he first of all, writes down a list of anything that's in his mind that is going to prevent him from going to sleep, like what he has to remember to do tomorrow or the thing he forgot to ask his teacher or just anything at all. And then um, he uses the app. So he uses basically, it's like a nighttime meditation, sort of guided meditation that he listens to. 
And so there's calming, quiet music, and there is a calming, quiet voice. And it really just helps him to get his head in a space where he will be able to have a good night's sleep and get settled. Because that is one thing for him, is he really has that busy brain at night. So he does take um, medication as part of, uh, again, the tools that he uses to manage um, his ADHD. But at nighttime, he's thinking all the thoughts about all the things. And so that's been an incredibly helpful tool and part of his routine. So um, it's working for the time being. We love it. He loves it. And so we'll continue to use it until it's not effective or not helpful anymore. Until the toolbox needs to change, right? The yes. We're always changing out the tools. We get a bunch of tools and we work through them and they're not working or that's working or got to change it up. Yeah, but that's been a good one for us. Tiana, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, it has been so nice to have a conversation with another mom who's been down the road and has made it to the other side because we all do as parents, whether we're moms or grandparents or aunts or uncles or whatever it is you are to that child. And I think what I really hope people take away from this is that, you know, that the, the road to get to the end is can be not is it can be scary it can be overwhelming and it can be difficult but the benefits of getting to the other side of the bridge or the road or the tracks or whatever you want to visualize in your brain um is so worth it because to your point of the knowledge and the information that you get is the power that you hold um, and so I just think that that message is a really good one. So thank you so much for helping us to hear a little bit about your story. I'm wondering where people can learn more about you and the part-time jungle and all of the things, because there are many things going on in the part-time jungle. I was on the website the other day and I thought, okay, there's more than one thing happening. So tell us a little bit about part-time jungle and kind of where people can learn more about you and what you do. All right. So the part-time jungle is a space and place to create conversation and community all about swinging motherhood and work in a way that works best for us and our families. So for any moms out there who feel like they don't fit neatly in a box or a label, that's the place for you. And so uh, my website is uh, thepartimejungle.com. So that's one place to find me. I'm also the host of the Part-Time Jungle podcast, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. And the podcast is the same, uh, does the same type of thing. So I have conversations with other moms and at times some personal reflections all about the ways that we swing motherhood and work, the strategies that are helpful to us, the challenges we have, and really sharing stories about our experiences as a way to facilitate connection and to normalize the fact that motherhood and work can look so many different ways to so many people. There's no one right, best, or only one way to be a mom and, and juggle that with work or to be a mom, period. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Part-Time Jungle. I'm on Facebook, not as much, but at Part-Time Jungle as well. And then coming in January 2021, I'm launching a, an online course um, called Mastering Your Motherhood Jungle. 
So it's all about helping moms learn how to untangle the vines and swing through motherhood and work with flying colors. So we're going to um, work through six modules over six weeks and really dig into the motherhood work juggle that works best for us. And there will also be some other guest experts uh, sharing their expertise and zones of genius um, with the moms and along the way as well. So I'm really excited about that. That sounds like a really interesting one. I think I will have to read more about that one. Tiana, thank you again. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are looking for help and support in creating a roadmap to success for your child through challenging times, contact me at accesstoeducation.com. I work with all families to help them build power and knowledge in understanding their child's needs and how to build success through advocacy. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Access to Education Toronto. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so together we can create your roadmap to success.